0: I want to give you some word groupings. We're going to do a little word association. I'll give you the word grouping, and I want you to think about what emotions or response come to mind. Don't say it out loud. We're not supposed to talk out loud in church. Just keep it to yourself. But I'll give you some word groupings. Tell me, think to yourself what kind of emotions, responses come to mind. So the first word grouping, meat, fire, barbecue sauce. Oh, that ought to bring happy feelings. A lot of happy feelings uh, anytime those words are put together. Okay, here's another one sunshine, picnic, park. That's good. Bring some warm fuzzies, some happy thoughts about that one. Here's another grouping water carbonation. I don't know why you would drink seltzer water, it is an abomination. I want to set someone free this morning. You don't have to drink it. You can drink regular water. And everyone says, well, if it's got some lime or some cranberry, boop, seltzer water. That brings bad feelings, doesn't it? Of course it does. I'm glad we're all on the same page with that. I'm glad also that's a joke everywhere I go now. That's fantastic. Uh, Here's another word grouping. Coffee, book, quiet. That's good. I like that one. Let me shift gears a little bit. Let me give you a few words that are representative of the passage we're going to study this morning in Mark. Confrontation, accusation, betrayal, death. I would describe those words as sad, dark, infuriating. But do you know the word Jesus uses to describe these things? Towards the end of our passage, we'll read here in just a moment, Jesus uses the word marvelous. I would choose a thousand different words before I got to the word marvelous, which probably shows why I need so much the eyes of Christ to understand His death on the cross, There's many different ways we might respond to the story of Christ's death for sinners. If it's a new story to you, you might respond with curiosity. If it's an old story that's lost its luster, you might respond with indifference. If you don't understand the significance of the story, you might respond with apathy. But if you do understand the significance of his death, and you understand the depths of your sin... And you can see full well how marvel is the right response. And that's the way God's people have responded for 2,000 years to the story of Christ's death. We can use other words, words like awe or wonder or amazement. And our response to the story of Christ's death is more than just some sort of emotional reaction, rather, it gives us. Faith in the face of trials, it gives us strength in all kinds of sorrows. It gives us comfort in all of our hardships. When we see the cross right, it fuels all of life, gives us strength and courage for all that's in front of us. To know that Jesus died for me and saved me, that changes everything. So what is your response to the death of Christ on the cross? My goal today in preaching this passage is to help you see the cross of Jesus in such a way that you would marvel at Him, that you would respond in awe and wonder, amazement, trust, and that those things would fuel the day-to-day living of your life. So in our passage, I want to show you three reasons why the death of Christ is marvelous. I'm not trying to be morbid or grotesque in any way, but three reasons why the death of Christ is marvelous. Can rightly be called marvelous. Now, before we read, we're going to start in chapter 11, verse 27. But before we read, I want to give you a bit of context just to remind you of where we've been and where we are as we launch into this this morning. Uh, Remember this that from Mark chapter 1 to Mark chapter 10, we cover a few years in the life of Jesus. But from chapter 11 to the end of the book, we just cover a few days. And so a couple of weeks ago when we started chapter 11, uh, we followed Jesus as He entered Jerusalem. Do you remember how He came into the city? He rode in on a donkey, and this is a scene that we call the triumphal entry. It's holiday season in Jerusalem. The big holiday is Passover, and it's a pilgrimage holiday, meaning people from all over are flooding into the city, into the holy city, to celebrate, to worship, to, to observe this holiday. Jesus enters the city on a donkey. He comes with all these pilgrims from Galilee where his ministry has primarily been performed. And they know him and they understand the imagery. Jesus is making a public statement that he is the Messiah, the one who has come to save God's people. From that day to the next, things just begin to roll forward. You remember that Jesus, the day after entering the city, he goes back to the temple and he clears the place. He, to use a term we're familiar with, does damage. He turns over tables. He chases out merchants. He accuses the leaders and the people of treachery against God. You've turned this place into a den of thieves, a place where thieves relax and think they're safe and protected from God's judgment. Cost quite a scene. Well, the passage we're reading today happens the day after that. The day after Jesus has cleared the temple and stirred things up and come in accusing and promising judgment and wrath. What happens next follows those things. So follow along with me in your Bible as I read Mark chapter 11, verse 27. They arrived again in Jerusalem. Who's the they? The they is Jesus and his disciples. They arrived again in Jerusalem, and while Jesus was walking in the temple courts, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders came to him. By what authority are you doing these things, they asked, and who gave you authority to do this? Jesus replied, I will ask you one question. Answer me, and I'll tell you by what authority I'm doing these things. John's baptism, was it from heaven or from men? Tell me. They discussed it among themselves and said, if we say from heaven, he will ask, then why didn't you believe him? But if we say from men, they feared the people, for everyone held that John really was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, we don't know. Jesus said, neither will I tell you by what authority I'm doing these things. He then began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard. He put a wall around it, dug a pit for the wine press, and built a watchtower. Then he rented the vineyard to some farmers and went away on a journey. At harvest time, he sent a servant to the tenants to collect from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. But they seized him, beat him, and sent him away empty-handed. Then he sent another servant to them. They struck this man on the head and treated him shamefully. He sent still another, and that one they killed. He sent many others, some of them they beat, others they killed. He had one left to send, a son, whom he loved. He sent him last of all, saying, they will respect my son. But the tenants said to one another, this is the heir. Come, let's kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. So they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What then will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and kill those tenants and give the vineyard to others. Haven't you read this scripture? The stone the builders rejected has become the capstone. The Lord has done this and it is marvelous in our eyes. Then they looked for a way to arrest him because they knew he had spoken the parable against them. But they were afraid of the crowd, so they left him and went away. So if you're taking notes, I want to give you three reasons why The death of Jesus on the cross is marvelous. It's an intense story. It describes His rejection, His death, closes with the word marvelous, and it's instructional for us today. The first reason the death of Christ is marvelous is this. The death of Jesus is the full application of His authority. It's really wordy. I wish we could do it simpler in You probably can find a better way to write that. The death of Jesus is the full application of His authority. Authority is the key word. So here at the end of chapter 11, Jesus and His disciples have arrived back in Jerusalem. And they're confronted in the temple by the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders, we're told in verse 27. Now these three groups, chief priests, elders, teachers of the law, they make up a super group called the Sanhedrin. Maybe a term you're familiar with, just in case you're not, the Sanhedrin is the Jewish religious supreme court. They are the key power brokers over all of Jewish life. And it's not the whole Sanhedrin that confronts Jesus on this day, but representatives from the Sanhedrin that are there. And this is not the first time that we've heard of this group, the chief priests, the elders of the law, or excuse me, the teachers of the law and the elders. Really, Jesus introduces us to them way back in chapter 8. Chapter 8, verse 31, Jesus predicted his death and resurrection for the first time, and he said this, he said, "...the Son of Man must suffer many things." And be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law, and he must be killed and after three days rise again. So we know that when these three groups are found together, trouble is not far behind. They are not a welcoming committee, they're not there for goodwill and friendship, they're there for trouble. They have two questions for Jesus in verse 28 They say, By what authority are you doing these things? And they ask, who gave you the authority to do this? Now, what are these things this group of troublemakers is referring to? Well, we know at the very least they're referring to the events of the previous day when Jesus came in and cleared the temple. He turned over the tables of the merchants there. He kicked over their uh, money buckets and he chased them out of the temple and he spoke judgment on them. So at the very least... Uh, these power brokers are referring to the events of that previous day. But also, remember this Jesus is a known commodity. He's not a stranger to them. They've known about Jesus for years. In fact, way back in chapter 3, this group sent uh, some representatives from Jerusalem to Galilee. These pompous hypocrites come rolling in to where Jesus is doing his ministry. And they made a decision about the authority of Jesus then and there. Do you remember what authority they claimed in chapter 3 that Jesus worked according to? They said, he is possessed by Beelzebub, by the prince of demons. He's driving out demons. So this has already been said. Jesus is already known to these men. They have their conclusions already. They're not asking about authority because they're really curious about who he is as if maybe he has some ordination papers he can show or some diploma that gives him the right to be there. They know full well who he is. They're not there to get information. They're there to embarrass him. In their mind, they ask, by what authority you're doing this, Jesus is going to say, by God? And then they can accuse him of blasphemy and drag him in front of Roman authorities. Or he says, I don't know, and and then they can embarrass him. They can try to make a mockery of him and his ministry and and win the favor of the people and uh, the the tide of popular opinion. Jesus, ever the verbal ninja, responds to their two questions with one question. Verse 30, John's baptism. Was it from heaven or from men? Tell me. I love that little tell me on the end because here come these guys, right? They're bowing up to Jesus but what authority do you do these things? And Jesus flips it on them. You answer my question, tell me. He's the authority. He's in control of this whole scene. It's fantastic. And so Jesus, in his question, he asked them, John the Baptist, his ministry, not just his baptism, this is really a question about his entire ministry. Was his ministry, was it sanctioned by heaven? Did it come from God? Or was it just his own invention? Just some men that said, yeah, John's a good guy, and so he did these things on his own. It's interesting, Jesus aligns his ministry and always has aligned his ministry with John the Baptist. These two are inseparably connected. John is the last of the prophets, and he prepares the way for the Messiah. John... Uh, is recognized by all the people as a prophet of God. They see him as a sincere man of God, that his message is true. It is heavenly in its origin. And and what's interesting about John's message to the people was he preached a repentance that didn't go through the temple. That Jewish temple where Jesus and these guys are standing in chapter 11, that's the center of the universe for Jewish life and faith and practice. John said... Repent and be baptized for the remission of sins. He did that in the wilderness. He did that in the Jordan River. He didn't tell them, go to the temple and make sacrifices. He said, right here in this muddy water, by faith, you can be right with God, regardless of ethnicity, regardless of the temple, regardless of anything else. That's the same message, of course, that Jesus has preached and lived out in his life. Jesus has aligned himself with John the Baptist. If the bad guys say, John the Baptist was from heaven, his message was from heaven, his ministry was God-authoritative, then what's going to happen? They say, well, then Jesus is going to scold us for not believing. If John's true, then why don't you believe? But if they say his ministry is from men, then what? Well, they're going to anger the people, and they fear the people. It's a horrible thing. When leaders of God's people fear People more than God. So they want to keep popular opinion. In 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 their statements here they reveal that they have no authority of their own. They reveal that they can't tell the difference between what is of God and what is of Satan. They are utterly foolish and ignorant here. So when they answer we don't know, Jesus then says, All right then, I'm not going to answer your question either. Does that leave us in the dark? Are we like these power brokers, these opponents of Jesus, are we left in the dark at the end of chapter 11? Or do we know something about Jesus' authority? We know a lot about his authority. This question has not been left unanswered throughout the entirety of Jesus' life and ministry. By what authority, then, does Jesus heal the sick and raise the dead and walk on water and control the storms and feed the masses and cast out demons and forgive sins, Well, Jesus does only what God can do as He does these things. His authority is not borrowed. His authority is not received from someone else. His authority is not an earned authority. His authority is inherent because He is authority. He is very God. And what does He do with all of that authority? All of this sovereignty, all of this power, all of this right? What does He do with it? He goes to the cross. Our sin deserves punishment. And Jesus, in all of His authority, has every right to just wipe us off the map, to be done with us altogether. But what He does instead is He takes all of His authority and He applies it to our redemption through His death at the cross. It's amazing. When we look at Him on the cross, when we consider His death Here's Jesus, not defeated, not weak, but Jesus, God in the flesh, dying for me. All of his authority applied to this moment for my redemption. Now, here's what you and I have to know, that challengers to the authority of Jesus are commonplace, right? This wasn't the last and final challenge to his authority, that every Season of church life, there's always some challenger out there that wants to say negative things about Jesus and about his sovereignty, his power, his right, however you want to say it. They exist everywhere. Some challengers try to diminish the authority of Jesus by saying it's no longer relevant. Instead, we need to listen to the majority of voices who chart a new and modern way for us. Other challengers will try to add to the authority of Jesus. They'll say the authority of Jesus is insufficient on its own, and so we need a church to interpret these things for us, or a tradition that leads the way, or we need a man to stand between God and the church to tell us this is how things go and how we're to practice our faith. But don't you believe any of that garbage? And don't you be afraid of those challengers to the authority of Jesus. His authority is sufficient and it is beautiful and it is marvelous and it is for your salvation. When you think of the cross, think of Christ's authority at work. So if he is the authority over sin, then his death is where forgiveness is found. And if he's the authority over sickness, then his death is where healing is given once and for all. If he's the authority over death, then the cross is where life is given. The death of Jesus Christ is marvelous because it's where we see his authority at work. God puts into effect all of his power to rescue you from your sin, to conquer every sin, every sorrow, and every bit of suffering. That's why the cross of Christ is marvelous. Let me give you another reason from our story why the death of Christ is marvelous. It's because of this. Second, the death of Jesus was always the plan. The death of Jesus was always, Always the plan. When we get into chapter 12, Jesus is still addressing the same group. If if we didn't have any numbers on the page, we would feel like this is all one scene. It wouldn't feel so choppy to us. Jesus is still addressing the same group, and he does so by telling them a parable. Uh, The parable is called the Parable of the Wicked Tenants. And it describes a scene that was common in Jesus' day. There were many absentee landowners. They'd buy a piece of property. They lived in another place, perhaps, or they traveled to another place, and then they would rent that property out to tenant farmers. And the farmers paid their rent via the harvest. They would get their harvest, and a portion of that would go to the landowner. In the parable, the landowner sends multiple servants to retrieve the rent. Common practice, not a bad thing. And what do the farmers, what do the tenants do to those servants? They seize them, they beat them, they kill some of them. And then, remember how the parable goes? The owner of the land says, I don't have any servants left, so I'll send my son. Surely they'll respect him. And the son shows up, and the tenants scheme together. This is the heir. And if we kill him, then we can have a claim on the land, sort of through squatters' rights. What Jesus describes is a, a real legal scene in his day. So the thought is, if the son is dead, the heir is dead, and the landowner is far away and can't make it in a certain amount of time, then we get to keep the land. It's ours because he forfeits it, essentially. So they kill the son. Here's the quiz. In the parable, who is the father? Who's the landowner? God. God is the landowner. All right, question number next. Uh, In the parable, who are the servants that are beaten and killed by the tenants? Those are the prophets. Next question, Uh, who is the son sent by the father in the story? That's Jesus. Last question, who are the wicked tenants? Look at verse 12. Then they, that's these opponents, they looked for a way to arrest Jesus because they knew He had spoken the parable against them. But they were afraid of the crowd, so they left Him and went away. It's so interesting, um, previously in Jesus' ministry, He's asked by His disciples, why do you teach using parables? And one of the reasons He uses parables, He says, is to obscure the truth from those who have rejected Him. But in this instance, those who reject him understand the parable full well. They know who they are in the story. And through their anger and their outrage and their dark, heart, outrage and dark hearts, they continue forward in what God has preordained, the rejection, the betrayal, the arrest, the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. A story similar to this parable is found way back in Isaiah chapter 5 it's called the allegory of the vineyard or the song of the vineyard similar scene similar language a landowner buys this piece of property plants a vineyard builds a wall builds a watchtower builds a wine press only in isaiah chapter 5 the story goes like this the the grapes produce the vines produce bad fruit everything's great the soil's great the scene's great it's on a hillside everything's perfect but he gets bad fruit from these vines. And as a result, well, judgment comes. In that story, Isaiah chapter 5, it's a story about the people of God, about Israel's rebellion. They are the bad fruit. They're supposed to be yielding righteousness, and instead they live in wicked and evil sin. Because of that, Isaiah the prophet speaks of God's coming judgment. This story by Jesus in Mark chapter 12 is different. It's not Israel that's in sight. It's the leaders of Israel who are in sight. They are the ones on whom judgment is coming as they fulfill God's will for the death of His Son. They will take Jesus and they will lead Him ultimately to His death. What strikes me about the parable is as Jesus tells the story, He doesn't challenge these religious leaders to change their plans. To spare his life, to let him live, to let things go a different way. His parable actually solidifies his opponents in their desire to kill him. And that was always the plan. The death of Jesus on the cross was not an accident, it wasn't a surprise to God. It was his plan since before he said, Let there be light. God knew what creation would cost him, he knew what your salvation would require. You see, every single one of us is marred by sin. Every single one of us belongs to that vineyard that produces rotten fruit. We are by our very nature sinners, and because of that, we deserve God's judgment. But here's the story of Scripture. Our God, though He has the right to punish and judge, our God is a God of mercy, rich in compassion, full of love, and so He has chosen to make a way for us that we can't do on our own. We can't rescue ourselves. We can't produce good fruit through our own good works. We need another to come and rescue, and there's only one who can do that, and it's not a pastor. It's not a religious leader. It's not the best person you know. There's only one, and that is God Himself. So He comes to us in the person of Jesus. He's God in the flesh, and He loves you, And he laid down his life for you. Something you hear me say often is he died your death so that you could live his life. That's the story of the gospel. We're sinners. God came. He died. He rose again. And by faith in him, we're forgiven of our sin and given eternal life. So when we look at the cross, we ought to marvel because this was always the plan, This was not some course correction because things went awry. Jesus didn't see this coming, or church leaders after the fact have to concoct some story to make sense of all the things that happened. This was always the plan when there was only nothing and not even something, but God Himself in triune perfection, this was always the plan. That He would die in your place for your sin. In that we see his sovereignty, his planning. You know what else we see there? Love. That's what moves him. His love for you. You define yourself by sin and failure and brokenness, mess up. He loves you. He knows you by name. He doesn't love you just in a general sense like he loves people. He knows your name. He knows your story. He has charted your steps and he loves you. You and his plan has been to rescue you from the penalty of your sin and to bless you with everlasting life. That's the kind of God we serve. When we look at the cross, we ought to marvel that it was always his plan to rescue us from our sin. Billy Graham said this once, God proved his love on the cross. When Christ hung and bled and died, it was God saying to the world, I love you. You ought to marvel at the death of Christ on the cross It is his love that rescues us from our sin. So this parable tells the incredible story of a loving Savior who died for sinners. And if you'll trust in him today, Jesus becomes your Savior and the cross becomes a marvel to you. One last reason we should marvel at the cross of Jesus is because the death of Jesus has a glorious outcome. The death of Jesus has a glorious outcome. At the end of the parable, verses 10 and 11, Jesus shifts gears a little bit. Look at verses 10 and 11 in your Bible with me. Jesus says this at the end of the parable to to his opponents. He says, haven't you read this scripture? The stone the builders rejected has become the capstone. The Lord has done this and it is marvelous in our eyes. So Jesus goes from this agricultural metaphor to a building metaphor, and what he quotes here comes from Psalm 118. It just so happens that we've already spent some time in Psalm 118, but you may not have realized it way back at the beginning of chapter 11. When Jesus enters the holy city on the donkey, the song that the people sing to him comes from Psalm 118. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. It has a very specific reference, Psalm 118. So this line that Jesus shares is about a stone that's rejected by builders, but then later that stone is found to be of utmost importance. It becomes the capstone, the most important stone in the building project, or in this case, in this new temple Jesus is the centerpiece, the focal point, the most important thing about God's future redeeming work. And Jesus is that stone who was rejected and then becomes the capstone. In other words, these leaders will kill Jesus and attempt to cast him aside, but God will vindicate him. Jesus will be killed, but God will exalt him to the highest place and give him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, everyone in heaven and on earth and under the earth. Every tongue will confess, every knee will bow that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's what's going to happen, according to Psalm 118. And what's the response to God's work? Who takes the one who was rejected and vindicates Him, the one who was cast aside and exalts Him. What's the response from God's people? The Lord has done this, and it is marvelous in our eyes. The Lord has accomplished The rejection and the vindication of Jesus Christ for your salvation. God has done that. It is marvelous in our eyes. And in fact, the entire Bible paints this picture of this similar pattern in the fulfillment of God's program. Here we go from rejection to vindication. And God has always worked in this sort of direction. In creation, the first day was not morning and evening. The first day was what? Evening and morning, why? Because God is bringing light out of darkness. Out of wanderings come the promised land, and out of crucifixion Friday comes resurrection Sunday. Out of the tribulation comes millennium. The rejected stone has become the capstone. The Lord has done this, and it is marvelous in our eyes. And that outcome is certain for everyone who puts their trust and faith in Jesus Christ. Forgiveness And eternal life and justice are set forever. And they are unwavering for those who belong to God. And the outcome is the same for all those who will hear the gospel and will believe and will be saved. That headline, the Lord has done this and it's marvelous in our eyes, it fuels the missionary endeavors of the church to tell the story of God who died, that lives would be saved it's why we do this very thing. Look, just a few months ago, our church voted strongly to move forward with the replan of First Baptist Situate, and it was not an easy decision. I think there's ways in which it's still not easy for us as a church as we think about this. The legacy members of First Baptist Situate realized the situation they were in, they reached out, and we've said, we're going to send Pastor Stephen and a core team To relaunch this church. That 200 year old church is effectively going to die, and a new church is going to be born in its place. And it's hard for us because these last few years for our church have been marked by loss and transition. That's been the headline. Look at all we've lost. Look at everyone who's gone. Leaders we love, people we care about, out of here. It doesn't feel like something to be happy about. Now, when they come back to visit, we put on the happy face, but then when they're gone, not so much. I'm so proud of our church to hear the voice of the Lord and to move forward with this, knowing what we've endured and how fatigued we've been over these past few years. But I want to make sure that this line from Mark 12 is the headline over that work. That it is not defined by loss, it's defined by the Lord. The Lord has done this and it is marvelous in our eyes. And here's why we can do that. Because in the near future, on an undefined date, we're going to send those people out of here. And the gospel will be employed and preached and lived and engaged in a ferocious way in the town of situate in a way it has not been done for generations and as a result of your brave yes to god there will come a day when I, i don't know some man comes into that church and he hears the gospel preached by pastor stephen and he sees the gospel lived by the men and women there and he bows his knee and makes jesus christ the lord of his life and the headline will be the lord has done this and it is marvelous in our eyes it cannot be lost if we are adding brothers and sisters to the kingdom of God. Can't be. And do you know what the outcome of that effort will be here at South Shore Baptist Church? The same bold faith that led us to say yes to that new church will lead us to share the gospel in the places where we live and work and shop and play. I'm so proud of the core team, the launch team who's going to go to Situate and do that work, but they cannot get out of here fast enough. Do you know why? They've got a job to do. They've got work to get busy at, and we need their seats and their parking spaces so we too can engage people who have not yet heard the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what you're going to do. And when the gospel is flourishing at situate, and as the gospel flourishes here, our headline is this, the Lord has done this, and it is marvelous in our eyes. When you look at the cross, what do you see? At the cross, we see his authority in action. We see his plan fulfilled. We see the outcome, the salvation of souls accomplished. One of the perks of my job is I I get to do weddings, and weddings are filled with a lot of special moments, but there's one moment that stands out for me. It's when the doors open and the bride enters with her father, and everyone's turning and looking at the bride, and that's right, but not me. I'm looking at the groom. Because I love to see these guys when the beauty of their bride hits their eyes in full They haven't seen her, perhaps, all day. And now everything's coming into this moment. And he knew she was beautiful. He didn't know she was this beautiful. And they're about to exchange some really serious promises. We're going to love each other when things go to garbage, when we lose all our money, when we lose our health. We're, We're with each other all the way through. I love seeing all that come to Fruition in the face of that guy as he sees his bride walking down the aisle. He looks at her and he sees her in a different way than everyone else in the room does. I think that's what we do when Christ has saved us. We look at the cross and there we see him more beautiful than ever before. More incredible than we ever thought of. And we know that every turmoil and heartache and tear and sorrow we face... We're going through it with the God who has made the way even in the valley of the shadow of death. We fear no evil for He's with us. We look at the cross and we marvel at the one who has saved us and rescued us and who is with us all the way through. When you look at the cross, what do you see? Grace, victory, love. The Lord has done this and it's marvelous in our eyes. Let's pray together. Lord, as we hear this word, we have to come in confession that uh, these opponents on this day, Mark 11 and 12, uh, our hearts may be a lot more like them than we would like to admit I'm grateful that in these portrayals of grace, there's grace in the judgment, grace in the warning.
1: There's a real warning
0: here. That when we reject your authority, when when we turn away from the cross, we find ourselves in league with these opponents of yours. Lord, how incredible is your love and your grace that you would call to us and you would turn us from our sin and you would give us new hearts and new life. Lord, thank you for this promise and hope we have in Jesus Christ. So God, I pray this morning that you would help some of my friends in here who have never looked at the cross in this way before to look at it and to know that this is where they find their life, their being, their breath, forgiveness and hope in Jesus Christ. Lord, let this be the day that they say yes to him, that they come to you. Faith is awakened in them once and for all. Lord, do this work today, please. I pray for my brothers and sisters who are just smashed by life right now, that as they gaze on the cross and they think about what it means, they would understand that life defines this. Eternal life defines all these things. I'm grateful we belong to another country I'm grateful there's a a day that awaits where there's no more tears, crying, mourning, pain, sickness, all that done away with. But God, on this day, would you fortify us, strengthen us anew, help us to persevere as we trust in you. Lord, let the headlines of our lives be, the Lord has done this, and it's marvelous in our eyes. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.